Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful encouragement it is to know that you hold on to us. To know that the scripture says that when you bought us, you redeemed us. We belong to you. So much so to the point where you have given us the righteousness of Christ. That we are clothed in his righteousness and his holiness and his goodness and his purity and because of that fully accepted in your sight. And that should really humble us, Lord, and I pray that it does because if we're at all aware and mindful of the unrighteousness that we still wrestle with, that dwells within, we should see and be aware of the great gap there is between like my actual goodness and righteousness and the goodness and the righteousness of Christ that is actually mine. And so, Lord, help us to, to rest in this and to rejoice in this and to enjoy you and, and your good pleasure to give us the righteousness of Christ. Your good pleasure to hold us fast. Your good pleasure to see us through, to, to take us to the end, to be with you. Your good pleasure to dwell with us for all of eternity. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful gifts that you've given to us. And it's my prayer this morning that, again, we would, we would see and appreciate the work of Christ done for us more clearly so that our lives might be lives of just genuine worship and honor and thanksgiving. The sacrifice that pleases you is, is a humble and contrite heart, a thankful heart. Lord, I pray that that's what we have today as we look to you and that you are pleased to magnify the truth of your word to us this morning. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good. It's good to be here. It's good to worship together. It's good to be reminded of what it is that we have in Christ and the assurance that we have in him for you guys yesterday um, that we're at the men's <clears throat> study. You know, we focused on talking about being vigilant, and I don't think it was much, much past noon where I had probably done things and thought things that were inconsistent with my call to be vigilant. I'm like, man, this wears off pretty quick. And it really what it did is it didn't discourage me. What it did is it, caused, it drove me back to Christ, where I find these things to be true for me. Yes, I want to be vigilant. Yes, I want to be a man of, of true biblical godliness and manhood. But I'm just aware of all the ways in which I don't do that well and I fail. And what that did is it drove me back to Christ to rejoice in his working and his strength and his power still active in my life. He didn't just say, okay, you failed, I'm done with you now. He continues to pursue me and woo me and continues to love me and carry me through, continues to hold me fast until the very end. And for that, I'm, I'm super grateful. Um, I want to talk a little bit today about the force of the law. Last week, we looked at the fount of righteousness. Today, we want to consider the force of the law in Romans chapter 4, verses, spending our time focusing on verses 14 and 15, but I'm going to read 13, 14, and 15 um, for us this morning. I want us to begin just by considering the fact that the Christian life is a life of faith from beginning to end. 
from the very beginning of our walk with Christ, it's a walk rooted in faith in the promises of God, that he's actually going to do what he says that he's going to do. Life begins in receiving God's gracious promises, and it is lived out by those same promises. Or to put it in another way, life is oftentimes lived out not having fully received what's promised to us. There are many wonderful things that we have that God promises to the Christian, and some of those things we have now. But the greatest things, the greatest of those promises that God has held out for us are still yet to come. And so just as Abraham lived a life of faith, and it was, he, that life of faith propelled him to live a life of longing forward toward, towards what it is that God had prepared for him and was giving to him, but he had not fully received yet, so it is with us in a Christian life. In many ways, we have what God, we know what he's promised. We've received many promises but the best of them is still yet to come. And my sinful nature just doesn't like to wait. In my mind, sometimes I'm thinking, God, you've made these promises to me. You've given some of them to me now. I want them all right now. My sinful nature doesn't like to wait. It doesn't want to um, prolong. The life of faith oftentimes is a life of delayed gratification. I'm still waiting for what is the best to come still. My sinful flesh doesn't like that. No waiting required. I want what I want, when I want, how I want, right now. But if we're honest with ourselves, the life that God has called us to live is a life of faith, of waiting towards what is still the greatest to come. And, and when we forget this fact, that's when we struggle in our Christian life. We struggle when we realize that we are living a life of faith based on God's gracious promises, and those promises, the best of them are still to come, and they're not to be, they're just not going to be materialized or come to fruition in this life. Many of them, the best of them, are still going to come, and we wait for them when we go to be with him. And this is really where the law comes into play. The law, because my sinful nature doesn't like to wait, it wants instant gratification. The life of faith is about delayed gratification. The law identifies that which seemingly provides me with what I want right now. Where, where, where faith says wait, the law says gimme right now. And, but it's not as if in the law doing this that it's a bad thing. If I were to, part of the reason why I wanted to focus on these two verses for this week is because I think if I were to poll people and I would ask you the question, is the law bad? What's your first response? I think most people's initial response is yes, the law is bad. And, but that's not what the Bible teaches regarding the law. The law is a good thing. The law is holy. The law is righteous, Romans 7, 12. The law is good. Just because it doesn't give me what I want doesn't mean that it's bad. And that just goes to show me how self-centered I really am. I look at anything that doesn't give me what I want instantaneously as being a bad thing. It's causes the force of the law is to, to push me away from myself as it exposes my sinful nature and force me towards to Christ and his promises and what it is that he holds out for me. Last week we looked at the promise coming by the righteousness of faith. 
Today we want to look at the law and seeing that the law is good for us and to understand rightly its function. And so let's read Romans chapter 4, verses 13, 14, and 15 this morning and spend some time looking at what the text says about the law and considering how it's actually good for us. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Last week, the doctrinal point that we considered was the necessity of righteousness for salvation. Man has to have a righteousness in order to genuinely be saved. But your righteousness that you offer, that you put forth, your best righteousness, your best works, aren't going to cut it. In God's sight, you need a perfect righteousness. And that righteousness that God demands, he provides through faith in Christ. He lived the perfect life. He was the one that was fully righteous. By faith in him, we receive his righteousness. And that righteousness then gives life to the promise that we would be heirs of the world. We would inherit the world. That's what God has promised to us. And that's a good thing, and we look forward to that. Today, I want for us to focus on the flip side of that and to look at what it is that the law does and how it's actually good for us. Faith and law are contrasted in Scripture, but they're not contrary. And you need to, we need to understand that. Two things can be contrasted, but not contrary to one another. See, we think that the law is bad and that it's contrary to faith because faith and the law both reveal the righteousness of God. But the law doesn't provide an avenue to fellowship with God as it reveals his righteousness where faith in the gospel does. And this is the the law-gospel distinction that we need to hold out in Scripture. That to be right with God, you have to have a righteousness, a perfect righteousness. We know that because God is perfect in his righteousness. Well, faith provides for me the righteousness that I need that's consistent with his righteousness. The law reveals God's righteousness, but it doesn't provide a way to, towards him to have fellowship with him in his righteousness. Both the law and the gospel reveal the righteousness of God. One of them provides what it demands, the other does not. And we look at the one, the law, that does not provide what God demands as being inherently bad. But the scriptures are clear that it's not bad that it doesn't provide what God demands. It's doing what God has called for it to do. It's serving its purpose. And the purpose of the law was is to point us away. It reveals God's righteousness and its perfection. And it doesn't allow me to attain that righteousness through my own obedience in order to push me towards, force me towards another avenue. There's got to be another way. And there is the righteousness that he provides for us in Christ. The law always reveals God's perfect righteousness, and when I, when, I, when I uphold my righteousness to it, I see how I completely fail. And in my failing, as Calvin would describe, 
regarding the, the use of the law. And my failing, I would not be so discouraged that I would walk away from his righteousness, but that instead it would point me towards Christ, whose perfect righteousness is offered to me. It's simply showing me that I fall short. And when you realize and see that you fall short, that's a good thing. Because then you stop striving to do it on your own. If you never come to the point where you realize that your righteousness won't cut it, you'll never see a need for Christ. And the law points to us and says, you can't cut it. You can't offer what is good enough in order to have fellowship with God. And that's a good thing. The law is doing what it's supposed to do in order to then we might be pointed towards the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The problem that Paul is addressing is that the law had ascended to such a place of prominence that Jews thought it to be the very gateway of salvation. God had given his people his holy, righteous, and good law. They looked at that as how mankind can be saved in the, in the gateway to salvation. And that, that mindset continued on for, for years and years and years. That's the reason why Paul is addressing it here. What I want for us to see this morning is really two things. The, how the law forces us to the promise and how the law forces us towards forgiveness. So verse 14, as we pick up here in the text, the issue that Paul here is addressing is how does one become an heir of the world? He says in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And we discussed the importance of the righteousness of faith last week. Today we contrast with the fact that it doesn't come through the law. Verse 14, for if it is the, the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, heirs of the world, faith is null and the promise is void. Verse 14 shows us that the law forces us towards the promise. The promise to be the heir of the world comes through the righteousness of faith, not through your own righteousness, which the law reveals to us. The issue of how does one become heir of the world, the answer is the same way Abraham did, by faith. Abraham was a child of faith in the promises of God, not on his own works, and that faith was counted to him as righteousness. And he emphasizes that point here by contrasting faith with the law. And he says, if it is the adherence of the law, if, those, if, if the promise to be heir of the world actually comes by the law, not by faith, then your faith is null. The promise is void. He says several things here. Number one, God was a liar. If you can become heir of the world by the promise of God, not by faith, but by the law, by your own works, then God lied. Because God told Abraham that it wasn't by his works. It was by faith he was declared righteous. And if it was by the law, really, that someone was declared righteous, number one, God was a liar. And he's completely untrustworthy. And that, that will erode away at the foundation of whatever faith you have. That's why I think we're given such a wonderful promise in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, that tells us explicitly that, God, that it is impossible for God to lie. God's not a liar. But secondly, 
if the promise to be heir of the world comes by the law and not by faith, then you better start to get to work. Not only is God a liar, but you better, you better get it in gear. And you better start working. And I'm not talking about like halfway working. I'm talking about you better put the pedal to the metal from the moment you wake up to the morning you go to bed. You better be 100% working and earning the promise. If the promise is the carrot at the end of the stick that's always dangling out, and it's only those who work really, really hard to get it, and everybody wants that promise, you better be working harder than anybody else around you. But thirdly, tells us that faith is null and the promise is void. This whole life you're living, I mean, imagine this. What if, what if everything you thought you knew to be true about the Bible by faith was a lie? What if it wasn't true? What if you had it wrong the whole time? Right, I mean, we're talking about the very foundation of which Christianity, Protestantism stands. What if you really are saved by your works? What if you really are saved by faith plus works? What if that's the way that things really are? And we've just been believing in this like whole by faith alone thing. Oh my goodness. Like we're all totally out of luck here. We've had it wrong the whole time. You can understand why this is such a pivotal thing. Why is this issue of justification by faith continuing to be hammered over and over and over again? Because salvation, eternal life, depends on this very issue. You get this issue wrong of how someone is made right with God, either by faith or by works. You get everything wrong. I mean, everybody's... Eternal eternity is hanging on the balance of how you believe you're going to go to heaven, how you believe that you are saved. I mean, we gather together every week and we sing songs celebrating and praising God because we're saved by faith, grace, and not works. That's the, foundation of the, that's the foundation of the church. That's the foundation of the Christian life. Faith in the work of Christ and not my own. But if we've had it wrong, your faith is null. Imagine that. Imagine if, if your faith was completely worthless and the promise, void, no good. Imagine if we had a God who couldn't actually provide what he said that he provides by faith alone. I know I promised it by faith. I'm sorry, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't carry it through, guys. You, you, you've got to earn it. We would all be in a lot of trouble for a lot of different reasons. But the main one is that none of us would be able to achieve what it is that God demands. To live a life of faith, I mean, it's the beginning of the Christian life. And every day is lived out by faith. I'm still waiting. Uh, yes, I believe that in a very real and true way, I have the righteousness of Christ. I possess that right now. And if you're in Christ, so do you. 
I have that. You have that. You possess it. It's yours. You've been adopted into his family. He calls you his beloved son and and daughter. These things are, are spiritual, relational truths and realities. But the actual reception of it, the actual being brought into his presence, I'm still waiting for that. That's a life. I'm living by faith. Every step I take, every breath I take is a life of trust and faith in him. Why should I want to learn how to be a a godly man? Why should I want to learn how to shepherd my child's heart? Why should I want to study the book of Galatians or Romans or anything like that? Because I believe by faith it has value in the sight of God, and it's not contributing at all to my salvation, but it's it's equipping me and helping me honor him more in my life. And that means a lot to me. I want to do that in my life. That's an act of faith. Every time you put forward wanting to honor God and glorify God more than yourself, that's a step of faith. The Christian life is, is, is inherently a life of living by faith, of what it is that God has, is still holding out for us. But if it's salvation is not by faith and it's by works, then I'll tell you what, I'm showing up here during the week to prepare for stuff like this, and it's absolutely meaningless. I've just completely, like, thrown my life away. And you have as well. Anything that you do by faith, complete and total waste of time. It's not gonna amount to anything, if it's by works. You can see how not only conceptually this is a really important thing, but practically as well, how you live your life day to day. It's incredibly important to think through this. Your faith is null and your promise and the promise void. Flip with me, if you will, over to Galatians chapter 3. As Wayne read this morning, there are some overlap regarding not just the importance of faith and the centrality of it, but the role and the relationship that the law plays by God's good purposes for us. And so you see that the law forces us towards the promise. So he'll say in chapter 3, verse 16, which Wayne has already read for us and covered much of this morning, but again, just by way of reminder, now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. So Christ is the offspring. You read Galatians chapter 12, 15, 17, all these places where the offspring is mentioned, and you see Jesus Christ there. That's what God's telling us. I want you to see Christ there. This is what I mean, he says in verse 17 of Galatians 3. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So now he puts this this offspring promise in the context of a covenantal relationship which we've seen in Galatians 12, the promise was made. Galatians 15, it's, it's, it's ratified by this covenant ceremony assuring that God would bring the promise about. And then he goes on and he says in verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And then he uses, and he, so he includes this idea of an inheritance in verse 18. The context of a covenant, the promise is repeated, and what Abraham is going to receive is an inheritance. And Jesus would fulfill what God promised 
to save fallen man. And Abraham becomes a partaker of that promise and included in the promise as he is the, the head, if you will, the representative of the one who received that promise. All with, he receives the promise of God in this covenantal context that he would have this inheritance and he believes God. It's countered to him as righteousness. And he's actually a part of that promise himself as well in what it is that Christ is going to do. And the emphasis played on faith. So then the, the, the question then comes, well, then what's the big deal about the law? Why did it happen? And Paul would go on to this in, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19, 19 through 29. And I'm not going to read through all of it, but I want us to notice a few verses here. Galatians three nineteen. Why then the law? If it was by the promise that God made to Abraham, why, why the law? It was added because of transgressions. The law was added because of transgressions. People were already breaking the law. They were law breakers. We'll get to that more when we cover verse 15 in Romans 4. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, until Christ should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, by no means. See, they contrast, but they're not contrary. For if the law had been given, that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What's the purpose of the law if it comes by if the gospel and the law are contrasted, if faith and the law are contrasted, but they're not contrary, then what's the purpose of the law? And the purpose of the law was added for us, as he would say here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, we were held captive and imprisoned till the coming faith would be revealed. The law was our guardian, he would say in Galatians 3, 25. The law served God's good purposes in revealing his righteousness to then show us our unrighteousness, to force us away from right, pursuing righteousness on our own and pursuing it and understanding it and obtaining it through Christ. And so in that way, the law is a really good thing. The law forces me towards the promise and to jettison my own pursuit of righteousness in my own terms. And that's where we see the contrast in verse, again, back in Romans chapter 4, verse 14. Here we see the contrast. If it isn't by the law and by righteousness, then why the law? Well, it points me towards the promise. And secondly, the law forces me to, towards forgiveness. That I can't attain a righteousness on my own. That I must have Christ's righteousness, but in having his righteousness, what I then also receive is complete and full forgiveness. That you have forgiveness, complete and utter and full forgiveness of your sin, your transgressions with God. Not because you were good, but because Christ was good. Because of his perfect obedience not because of your own. And when you receive his righteousness, what you receive is complete and utter forgiveness. 
for your sin. You live actively now. You live in a, a, a very realistic relational state with God, completely forgiven of all that you've done and all that you will do. You think of how complete and thorough a gift we have in the righteousness of Christ. Where you're, where you're forgiven fully, that debt is fully and completely paid. He emphasizes this fact in verse 15. For where the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. He's making a theological point here. He's not, he's not tackling the issue in a historical timeline of events here in verse 15. He'll actually get to that later in chapter 5. Well, then what happened between like Abraham and Moses? There's this long span of time which there, were no, there was no law, no Mosaic law. And if it's through the Mosaic law that people are transgressors, knowledge of that, then were there people between Abraham and Moses not transgressors? Yes, they were. But he'll tackle that historical issue later on in chapter 5. What he's talking about right now is just a theological truth, a spiritual and doctrinal truth, as he's contrasting the righteousness of Christ and man's own righteousness. If you're under the law and you're putting forth your own righteousness, wrath remains. Wrath remains for you. An eternal wrath remains. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. For those who have the righteousness of Christ and are not under the burden of the law because Christ has paid that debt of the law for them, then there's complete and full forgiveness. You are no longer seen as a transgressor in his sight. He looks at you through the work of Christ, through the perfect work of his son. The law brings wrath, and if you're still depending on your own goodness and your own works and your own merits, then, then wrath remains. You are still seen as a transgressor. But if you've received the righteousness of Christ, then you have life. Life has been given to you. You have this promise to be heir of the world assured to you. And no wrath remains because you're no longer a transgressor. You're no longer a lawbreaker in his sight. You are a child of his. And this is where I think we really struggle is because I, I do things I, in a very real way every day. I break God's law. I transgress his law. What he's revealed to me is being what he wants and what he doesn't want. I don't do the things I should do. I do the things I shouldn't do. This will be an issue Paul tackles in Romans 7. But I'm very aware of the fact that I'm, I'm a lawbreaker. I don't love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you? Every moment of every day? Do you love the Lord your God with all that you have more than anything else in this life? Come on now. No, none of us do. You're constantly, every time you're not loving God with all that you have, you're transgressing his law. You're breaking his law. 
That's like every moment of every day. And yet, because there was one who loved the Father with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength, he did that completely, fully. Like, while he was asleep, he still thoroughly loved the Father with all that he had. And because of his perfect life and righteousness, by faith in him, you have been given that righteousness. And it's counted to you as if you do love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're no longer seen as a lawbreaker, a transgressor. transgressor. You have a spiritual and positional truth that is being emphasized for us here. That righteousness by faith comes by faith and not by works. And this is, he's dealing with the person standing before God. This, the law forces us towards forgiveness and the righteousness that Christ offers. And what it is that we've seen so far in Romans regarding the law, and take, we take note of as we come to a passage like this. What it is that we've seen. We've seen in Romans chapter 2, verse 18, that God's law instructs us on what God's will is, what he approves of, and what is excellent. We saw in chapter 3, verse 20, that the law gives us a knowledge of sin. We saw in chapter 3, verse 21, that it bears witness about God's righteousness. And here we see that the law brings wrath. We'll see later on in chapter 5, verse 20, that the law came to increase sin. We'll see in chapter 7, verse 7, that the law identifies what sin is. And in contrast to faith, it's no wonder that we oftentimes fall into the trap of seeing the law as a bad thing. The law reveals my sin. It identifies sin. It brings wrath. It bears witness to me about God's righteousness. Faith justifies. Faith provides righteousness. Faith accompanies a promise. Faith makes me an heir. The law doesn't do any of that stuff. And so then I tend to think, I don't like the law. The law is bad. But the law is not bad because it's doing what God has called us to do. or what it, It's doing what God has called it to do. Paul would answer this very issue in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? The law has got to be sin. It's got to be bad, right? By no means. Yet if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. This is why, going back to what he said in chapter 3, verse 21, or excuse me, verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Right? If the law does all this stuff for me and it reveals my sinfulness, my iniquity, and God's righteousness and how I don't measure up and I'm saved by faith and surely... When I come to faith, I jettison the law. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, what do we do? We uphold the law. Why? Why would I as a Christian, okay, I'm justified by faith. I rejoice in the fact that I've been given Christ's righteousness. Why would I not want to get rid of the very thing that continues to expose my sinfulness? 
right? We live in a culture where it's like we just want all the feels, all the good things. I, I don't like that. I, I'm going to get rid of that. This person is always arguing with me on Facebook. Unfriend. I don't like what that person says on Twitter. Delete. Right? We, we live in this world where I can completely surround myself with only hearing the things I like and want to hear. You come to the scripture, that's it's just not the way life is. You can't, like, rip out the pages of the Bible. I, I mean, I guess physically you could, but you no longer have God's entire word. You can't, you can't rip out the parts that you don't like. Ugh, that, exp- that shows me how dirty I am. It's how wicked I am. I don't like that. Turn the page. Where's, where's Jesus talk about how much he loves me? Oh, yeah, let me read that. I'm just living that. No, you, we, we need the law. We uphold the law. Because guess what the law does? Guess what happens when the law as a mirror reminds me and shows me how dirty and filthy I am? I run to Christ. I continue, I need. Why do I uphold the law? Why don't I, if I, it, it, you know, why don't I, if I don't like being shown how dirty I am, I'm just gonna get rid of every mirror in the house. Well, tell you what, that doesn't do anything about your actual filth. You just can't see it anymore. And that's a big problem. And that's what happens within churches. Let's get rid of all the mirrors. Let's get rid of everything that exposes me for who I really am without the righteousness of Christ. Because I don't like to see any of that. I don't want to deal with any of that. I just want to know that Jesus is my homeboy. He's my best friend. He couldn't imagine life without me. And he's wanting to, he saved me because he wants to dwell with me for all eternity. It's just me. It's all about me. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really, God couldn't imagine living life without me. Like, what did he do for eternity before you were around? Right, but the law continues to expose how dirty you are so that you run to Christ. It forces us towards where forgiveness is found. That's its intent before you're a Christian, and that's God's intent for it in your life after you're a Christian. You read the, the, the standard, the perfect standard that God has. Don't, I'm telling you, please don't close your eyes and fast forward through those passages of Scripture. See yourself. Let the Word of God expose you, all of you, the deepest recesses of your heart, and run to Christ and worship him and rejoice in him that he still has given you life and his righteousness. He, he already sees. He already knows. If I'm going to go up to heaven, you're there. If I'm descended to the depths of hell, you're there. Like he sees completely and thoroughly everything about you. You can't hide anything from him. And yet, you have full forgiveness if you know him by faith and by faith alone. Let the law force you to Christ every day. Send you forward and propelling towards him. God so graciously gave us the law to expose us. We don't like being exposed. 
It's not any fault of the law that I'm not saved by the law. It's my fault that I'm not saved by the law. God's law has always existed, even in the garden. And the law was pretty simple back then. Don't eat of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. That's the law. We broke it, collectively. You'll get to that in Romans 5. Because of that, Adam and Eve were exposed. They were, before they were naked and unashamed. Now they're naked and they're ashamed of who they are and what they've done. And what did they do? They fled and sought to cover their sinfulness, their iniquity. They didn't like to be exposed. That's what we continue to do in our sinful nature. Rather than running to him. Allow the law to expose you so that you might run to Christ. Allow his perfect law and his righteousness, his righteous requirements to expose you today. Even if it's for the first time. That you might run to him and find him faithful to receive all of those that come to him by faith. You're not putting forward one ounce of your own effort but instead you're proclaiming the work of Christ and his righteousness don't close your eyes and don't turn your head to what it is that the law does if you're a, if you're a non-believer see his law exposing your wickedness and your sin and come to him and find him faithful to forgive, to cleanse from all unrighteousness. If you are a believer, come to him. Don't close your eyes and don't bury your head in the sand regarding the reality of the sin that you, that you struggle with. Perhaps the sin that maybe even you live in that's gripped your life and you find no way out. Allow God's law to expose you and run to Christ. And find him faithful and good to cleanse you as well. I mean, this is the time where we're, we're getting ready to partake of the communion. We're getting ready to partake of the time where, where our eyes are drawn specifically, our taste buds are drawn specifically to the work of Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. His body broken, his blood shed. This is the place where forgiveness is found. For those who don't know Christ, and it's the place for us to, um, for, the, for those of us who do know Christ, to be reminded of the forgiveness that we have and the assurance, the promises that he's given to us. We look at the law and let it show you what it is that Christ has done for you. See it as a good gift from God that he has given to us. Let the law evaluate your life. Take summary of your law, of your life. Ask yourself, Lord, in what ways do I not love you? In what ways do I fail to live in a way that honors you and glorifies you? Confess those things to him. Seek to really grow in real practical holiness and godliness and to live in a way that's consistent with your position in Christ, the way that he declares for you to be. 
Let every command fill your mind and ask God to help you do what he calls you to do, whatever your position is in life. It's Father's, right? Father's Day. Just take inventory of the ways that you fail as a father. Run to him, find him good and faithful to help you. For for moms, wives, husbands, children, take take inventory of the way that you, you fail to live up to the standard that God has given you in your life and, but, and then don't be crushed under the weight of it and discouraged by it. Run to Christ and find him faithful to help you, to aid you and to equip you to do what he's calling for us to do. And hide in him, rest in him, rejoice in his work for you. So this is the time when we partake of communion. And the elements are on the back tables, and you can get those and return back to your chair and spend some time thinking, meditating, confessing, praying, rejoicing, resting in the assurance that you have in Christ if you indeed know him by faith. And we'll partake of this communion time together here shortly.